Hi everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of the State Violence Research Network podcast. Uh, My name is George Francis Bickers, the co-convener of the SVRN and this podcast is part of the network's ongoing work to highlight state violence and those working against it and trying to understand it. Um, Today from coronavirus isolation I'm joined by Dr Joe Shah. Joe thank you for joining me. You're welcome, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, so, Joe, obviously you're in isolation as well. So we're doing this podcast from a distance. Um, we're going to have a nice nice yeah. chat about your work and hopefully try and get over our coronavirus blues. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> definitely so, do with that. <laughs> yeah. Day three it's now. So <laughs> oh, Yeah, so it's, it's getting there, right? It's getting there. Yeah. Um, so, Joe, you have been involved with the SVRN now for, for a good long time. You're one of um, one of our favourite people to be working with. You are the, um, the facilitator for the Performing Activism Working Group for the SVRN, and you obviously presented at the, um, the first ever SVRN conference. So I was wondering if you could just kind of quickly tell us what your experiences with the network have been like, how you got involved in the kind of work that you do with the network. Yeah, sure. Um, So um, I came across the work of the network through a call out for papers for for the first conference. Um, And it really struck me as being a very different type of engagement to what I was used to um, seeing in in sort of in an academic context anyway. Um, it seemed very real, very authentic, and there was a there seemed to be a genuine drive to offer a conversation to um, state violence, but, but but to try and do it in a way where, which consolidates lots of different perspectives. Um, so, as you know, my own work, which is around socialization, is interested in opening up different worldviews and exploring those and trying to understand the world in a in a more nuanced way. So, um, I. Um, have been doing research for for a while into educational policy making, and I was just interested in um, sort of unpacking that through the through the lens of state violence. And I think just coming across the network enabled me to do that somewhat because um, it, it it welcomes artists, practitioners, academics, activists, all kinds of different individuals uh, who have a view or an experience. Um, of state violence or have worked you know um, on this area to be able to contribute so yeah that's how it came about I was just interested in the way the call out came out and then I just I, I just became involved and it was very it's very it's a very collective decentralized model of working uh, within the state violence research network which I really like so I uh, felt very welcome from the onset um, and so my work with the network has been increasing steadily since um, and it's great. I, you, you're my favourite people too. I really, I feel, I feel like it's so necessary to talk about these things, and um, you do it. You all do it with so, such sort of passion and zeal, and, and you know, it's, it's it's all very, it's all very genuine. It's coming from very genuine space. So I, I really like that. Well, it's great. It's, it's always lovely to hear that stuff. And you know, you were, as I've said to you before, I've said certainly said to others publicly, is that you were right from the start one of the people that really really got what we were trying to do in in the way that we were trying to do it so we've always been you know we've always been happy to have you involved and obviously you know you've become more and more involved as the as the network has grown and and we're thrilled to have you and it's it's a great opportunity for me I think to sit and talk to you like this because you know we talk pretty routinely anyway because we're both involved in the network and we're friends Mm. and you know this is the stuff that we kind of do but it's good for me to be able to sit and talk to you about and get I don't you know to kind of which I suppose is the point of the podcast full stop is to open up the space to allow people to kind of 
talk about this stuff in a kind of non-confrontational way, in a way that shares their shares their knowledge and their expertise with other people. So I'm really glad that you're here with us today. Thank you. It's it's um one of the things. So like, you've sent me a couple of notes prior to the show. It's something that I ask people to do 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 before before each podcast recording. And you sent me um, something that came out of last year's conference. So for those that weren't there, last year's one of the keynote speakers at last year's conference was um, Professor Kahinde Andrews. Yes, yes. So he's um, as you know, he's a professor of Black Studies yeah. at Birmingham yeah. City, and it's the only university that runs that degree in Europe. Yeah, and he, I mean, he was instrument. He he set this up, right? He was the one that set this up, and he he was, you know, uh, like brilliant enough. We were we weren't expecting to kind of. <clears throat> when I sent him an email for him to come and appear at the conference, I really, really wasn't expecting him to do it, and there he was, and he mm-hmm. came and gave an excellent paper. And there was something that he said that I know a lot of people at the conference really picked up on, and I know this is something that you've sent over in your in your notes. Mm-hmm. And he said. He said that the state is violence, right? And this is mm. an idea that the conference was really trying to get towards, which was to look at the state in its totality rather than its individual components and to recognise that it is violence. And I know you, today, you want to kind of talk about that in relation to your work on, on educational policy, right? Yes, yes. So, um, I mean, that was I, f- I felt that was a very powerful closing to his keynote um, because it could be unpacked in so many different contexts in so many different ways. And you could look at it in such a, it's all metaphorically, um, but then also, you know, the, the literal manifestations of physical violence yeah, yeah. that are, are, are often expressed through the state. So, yeah, what I really like to do is talk about, talk about that concept, but talk about it in the, in the context of educational policy making. Um, yeah, yeah. So j- just to give you a little bit of a background into um, the work that I've done. So mm-hmm. um, I, carried out a longitudinal, a qualitative longitudinal research project, which took place over um, a nine-year period. Mm-hmm. And I was interested in seeing what would happen to learners that were classified as of being low ability or having behavioural issues or special learning differences. I was interested in, in seeing what would happen to those learners, particularly those learners after they'd failed the GCSEs. And I was also interested in sort of tracking their trajectories after that failure at GCSE um, over, you know, a considerable length of time just to get a sense of whether the policy rhetoric of 14 to 19 policy making was being realised in the real lived experiences of these, uh, you know, quote unquote, failed learners. So um, that study brought me to lots of different and very interesting um, findings. And because I was focusing primarily on 14 to 19 policy, which had come out under an, under new Labour, um, under Blair, yeah, um, yeah. It, it was really interesting to see how that policy um, became a very kind of, well, a huge focus, actually, for the further education sector whilst that government was mm-hmm. in power. But then because I was in the field for so long, I was able to see the change in governments from New Labour to the coalition between the Liberal Democrats and the Conservative Party, and then later the, just the Conservative Party. Um, yeah. Sorry, the, the, the Conservative Party and the and the TP. And, the, and, and so it was really interesting to see how... Um, policy what kind of policy was being made what the language of that policy was um and then how that was percolating in in an institutional context and then how that was having direct and indirect impacts and lived experiences of young people 
and yeah they definitely I'll talk to you a little bit about that uh, later on I'm sure but there definitely seems to be I don't know if it's as um calculated um as you know a motivated um you know um generation of policy to try and suppress different sections of society but there definitely is I feel um just based on my research a violence in educational policy against people um based on their socioeconomic status mm-hmm. so working working class um young people of working class backgrounds I think um come out quite quite badly in terms of life chances and opportunities um yeah, and yeah. similarly you know I think um there's also an issue around race um in terms of young black boys particularly um yeah. being um classified and categorized quite negatively from quite an early age and and that's impacting on the uh, opportunities that they have in terms of a nor- well quote unquote a normal academic trajectory as in you know you, yeah, you do your yeah. GCSEs and then so the state is violence, I think, when it comes to educational policy making. If I'm honest, that's that's my view. Yeah, and this is this is something that, like, for you know, for a lot of people. I mean, so me and me and you, obviously, I know from 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 you know from from our conversations before, both me and you come at came into education from working class backgrounds. Obviously, you mm. have an added racialized dimension that I don't have but we both come into this and I know we've both discussed prior to this conversation we've both discussed the effects that growing up working class have had on us and in terms of education being a kind of form of state violence or an outlet for state violence it is most people's if we and you know to use the square the scare quotes the normative way of thinking about things education is most people's first contact with the state right in in any kind of sustained sense unless you've been unless you grew up on benefits like i did or or or, you know loads of other people did unless or you know if your family hasn't had any contact with the police or the prison system then school is your first sustained um experience of the state right and if the state is kind of actively or structurally complicit in this violence then that's going to be realized against you through the through the education system absolutely um there seems to be a really uncomfortable socialized dynamic um that 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 appears to sort of come into play in the education setting so Mm -hmm. the idea that you know in the future you will be a low-skilled or a semi-skilled worker or in the future you will you know, um, belong to this socio-economic status, and yeah, um, it, it just that's just off the top of my head. I'm just giving some very broad and simplified sort of examples of socialization, but kind of unpacking that a little bit. Just looking at how, for example, if you have failed your GCSEs, there isn't an option to retake them as a full suite of uh, subjects. Yeah. So yeah, English, and English and math, and that's it, right? exactly. Exactly. Um, And it wasn't always this way. In the 90s, you could retake your GCSEs. That was an option that was available through further education colleges. So what I think is really interesting is this streamlining of young people perceived as being of low academic ability because of their GCSE outcomes, uh, being steered towards vocational pathways. But Mm -hmm. our vocational system is very unstable it's not a standardized system so you have for example some subjects that do incredibly well such as engineering uh, health and social care hair and beauty 
you know, because these yeah. these sorts of areas are connected to industry. So they, even at the lower level qualifications, are attempting to prepare learners for industry. But then you have this kind of bizarre, stratified, siloed off suite of vocational subjects, uh, which are sort of the creative arts. Mm-hmm. And there isn't any real meaningful industry connection between those vocational areas and uh, enabling learners with work experience to be able to, you know, do something meaningful in those industries. Is, so, is this, is this, is this, just, sorry to interrupt, but is this to come down what strikes me as though, though that divide, right? The divide between things like engineering, health and beauty. Uh, tr- mm. One thing my school offered was travel and tourism, right? Versus, yeah, yeah. versus, the other forms of vocational stuff you said, like the creative arts, so we're thinking about fine art, we're thinking about uh, film and TV and music and stuff mm. like that, right? Is there, there's surely there's like an added class dimension to this as well, right? Like we see Absolutely. coming out all the time that the only way into the film industry, for example, is unpaid internships and family connections and the ability for a family to support you living in London, rent, you know, living in London cost-free without any pay for God knows how long while it takes you to break into the industry, right? So there's like an additional class stratification there. Absolutely. But there's also these other complications to the creative arts vocational sort of arena. So one issue, for instance, is let's take media studies. So um, with an ever-evolving digital world, you're often encountering lecturers that, you might have more digital expertise compared to, you know, and they're supposed yeah, to be the yeah. experts in that field and teach you these things, but you can actually, there isn't very much around that that you can learn from them. So you're, you're not technically being trained for anything. Um, and then yeah. similarly, there's issues around the lack of vocational, um, creative arts, vocational connections, media vocational connections to industry. So there's no real um, framework in place. So they'll throw the terminology like industry standard around a great deal in prospectuses, et cetera, yeah. to recruit learners. But there is an element of mis- misinformation or, mi- or you know, perhaps slightly exaggerated marketing, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah Because once you're, you know, once you're on these courses, you're not being prepared for the BBC or, the, or, or, um, or Sky or, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> Endemol or whatever. So what I noticed from my own particular study, which was looking at, GCSE failed learners who ended up on level two BTEC media courses. Yeah. Was I just found this common thread of learners having been missold the qualification. Mm-hmm. And um, quite often they were doing it as a stepping stone because they had the they were under the impression it was the equivalent to five GCSEs. So yeah. if yeah. they were, you know, so they could get back on track, so to speak, after nine months of doing this BTEC. And in a lo- what they didn't, again, realise, and this was part of the mis-selling, was that most colleges won't accept you onto an A-level programme with a BTEC, level two. Yeah, yeah. So you're being, so this is where the state violence, I think, does manifest, because you're being streamlined, based on that original failure of, that comes out of standardised testing, you're being streamlined into um, a vocational pathway, but that vocational pathway isn't really preparing you in a robust way for a vocation. And so you're, you're 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 kind of it's it's almost like you're you're being put into a bit of a catch twenty two, mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to come out of that. And one thing I found through fourteen to nineteen policy, particularly, was that there, in some instances, um, in my participant sample, for example, there were learners that had been in their FE college for, for seven years. 
Seven years. Seven years, and they hadn't achieved a level three, which is the equivalent yeah, to A-level. Yeah. Picked up when they were 14, you know, behavioural issues. Oh, we can do a partnership with your local FE college. You can do yeah. interesting things like animation. And then they just keep putting them through these sort of low-status, low-level vocational qualifications until um, they're not being paid for anymore by the state because of their age. This, yeah, that that was exactly going to be my exact next point, right? There's there's kind of two linked things going on here, right? There's one, there's like so, like it's one of my favourite terms, and it obviously it applies to um it applies to like airports particularly, right? But the idea of security theatre, right? That you know, like the reason mm. you can't bring certain things through through airport security is the illusion of the illusion of security, right? And then I think we can apply this potentially with a you know with a slight change to this like illusion of qualification or this illusion of progress right that like mm. come and do this course it's going to help you do this but actually we know that it's not and then as you just said linked to that is come and do it for as long as we can keep getting paid for you to do it and then mm. you know i come out the other end and you know excuse my language but get fucked you've got all these qualifications <laughs> that aren't actually going to move you into anything yeah yeah i mean it's, it is it is just it's just mind-boggling the whole thing it's so complex. Like, so there's another there's another strand to state violence with this, which is yeah. So we're constantly self critiquing ourselves as a nation that we have a skill like a skills deficit, mm-hmm. but we're not actually encouraging preparing our young people to be able to train for the jobs that we need for, for, like fulfilled. Yeah. So I've experienced this firsthand. Like, if you're um, as a person of color, I remember going to my teacher in secondary school and saying. I want to go to Oxford University because that's always, you know, that's, well, it was, I believe the hype at the time. No offense, Oxford University, if anybody's listening. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, um, and, and she, and she basically with a very straight face, very seriously told me, no, that's not for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you won't end up there and it's a waste of time to try and to try. So I would suggest that you concentrate on your strengths and, go go for you know other universities now it when i reflect back on that particular conversation i'm thinking i wasn't going to be making university applications when i was in secondary school i would have been making them when i'm in college so the fact that she basically wasn't the message that she was giving me was that i wasn't allowed to aspire yeah yeah um i wasn't allowed to you know reach reach for something and I, mm-hmm. I just wonder how many of those conversations are often happening with working class young people or with working class um, uh, young people of colour. Um, yeah. Particularly, I think, young black boys. Uh, there's, yeah. there's always, there's always, yeah, there's a lot of stereotyping around what that identity is and what it should be in the future. No, I, absolutely. And I, I mean, I had you saying that has put a very, very similar conversation I had in mind. So mm. I did I did one year of my A-levels because I was in a band and I was, you know, going out doing all this different stuff. And I thought I was a rock star or whatever. I did one year of A-levels and, and kind of just never, never really turned up again and ended up at mm. 20 going to do an access course, access to HE course, which mm. similarly was sold to me by saying this is the equivalent of, you know, three or four A-levels, right? Mm. and and i got there and um i was the youngest youngest person by quite a long way but i got there and um a friend of mine was like oh well, you know uh, you know this uh, friend of mine had gone to to cambridge and was was talking to me about maybe applying and i was like oh well you know it's probably worth a shot right and i went and spoke to um 
went and spoke to the person who was leading the course, uh, leading this this access course. And they were like, nope, don't bother. You're not going to get it. It's not worth it. And then my, my the difference in that situation between me and you was I was a, you know, 20 year old arrogant white boy. And I was just like, right, well, like, I'm going to give it, I'm <laughs> fuck you. I'm going to give it a shot and, and, you know, managed to talk my way in. And that's where I ended up doing my undergraduate um, yeah. for better or worse. But at the same time, you know, just after I left Cambridge, um, there was that, I don't know if you remember that really famous photo of black male undergraduates at Cambridge. Do you remember this coming out a few years back? I do, I do, yeah. And yeah. There, were, there were less of them than there were mm. the number of Cambridge colleges. Mm. And so this, again, this, this idea of being told not to aspire obviously has a class dimension, but definitely has a, has a race dimension to it as well, as you, you know, as you have this personal experience of. And these are, you know, Oxford and Cambridge, as much as we, you know, as, as much as we might rail against it, this is what the state hold, the British government and the British society holds up to us as the corridors of power, right? This is where you go. If you want to yeah. shape policy, if you want to be, if you want to be at the top of top of government, you want to be wherever you go to Oxford or Cambridge. More often, Oxford than Cambridge, but certainly both of them. Yeah, and yeah. being told not to aspire when you're in school, and you know, as as young as primary school, you're being told this isn't for you. That's where the state is concentrating its power, right, by keeping you shut out of, of the corridors of power. Yeah, and it is that very atypical kind of hierarchical system where you've got the privileged few at the very top who percolate that power down they are the state yeah, or they yeah, get prepared absolutely. to plan you know it's all you know and I think what's really interesting as well is this idea of how the socialization is occurring at a very young age so there's this kind of really uneasy hegemonic kind of interplay that occurs in what should be a safe space where you should have uh, teachers that have a really clear sense of duty of care towards you. But and often, I don't think there's anything untoward or any kind of planned and prepared element to the stratification in a school context. I think it's just the way it's, it's, it's designed, monitored, regulated, like whether you mm -hmm. look at the league tables and how you've got the commodification of education and then the, commod the commodification of individuals engaging in, edu in, in education. So we're, we're almost, we're in a society now where the educators, particularly in school settings, are being encouraged to think about their learners in a very clinical, kind of disembodied sense almost, um, because they're looking at them as, you know, well, will this person pass this qualification? or this exam, if they don't, that's going to have an impact on my data. That's going to yeah. then have an impact on how much money we get. So this it's it's been convoluted with lots of lots of really unethical crap, basically, mm -hmm. um, which just compounds this socialization. And a lot of it's subconscious in a school. In a, in a day to day school setting, I think a lot of it is subconscious. I don't think I think I think you have to be a very special person to enter into teaching, if I'm honest. And I think a lot of teachers would be mortified if they realised that they, there was a subconscious bias to the way that they were treating people from particular socioeconomic groupings or races, etc. Unfortunately, <laughs> the system is such that... So let's look at... Let, again, just drawing on some, drawing on some research. Um, yeah. The proportion of special learning difference tends to be higher in 
um, learners from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, the issues around, um, sorry, uh, diagnoses like um, ADHD, ADHD, oh, I can't, can't say it, ADHD, ADHD. <laughs> that's it, <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's almost like a, a trigger, um, a trigger happiness with that diagnosis, again, mostly for, for young boys from low socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. Um, behavioral issues again. That's a branding that's quite quite often mm. given to young um, uh, boys of color in particular. Yeah. Uh, from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So when you're dealing with learners in such a way that you're branding them in a very decontextualized way, without there being any 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 layer or nuance or humanity to it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you're subconsciously becoming part of that very problem that you're perhaps trying to educate people out of. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it, it pathologizes, right? It pathologizes the fact that actually you might be behaving badly because you're hungry, right? There were situations mm. when I was in, when I was in secondary school, like with, from no fault of, of my parents or whatever, but we were poor, right? We just, we just did, there wasn't that much money about. And, you know, I'd go to school ravenously hungry sometimes. And I was on free school meals and that was £1.20 a day, which was enough to get you one part of a meal, but not a full meal, right? Mm, and mm. you behave badly because you're distracted and you're tired and you're hungry and you might not be able to have any peace and quiet at home, right? Because, you know, for in my case, there were five of us. There were five of us at home, like five yeah. kids and a single and a single parent. You know, yeah. like you behave badly because, you know, because of a multitude of other things. And then to go into a school and be pathologized, as you said, with no nuance and no layering and no humanity to have yeah. that, um, to have that. And that, that then follows you around, right? Once you're the problem child, the teachers get to know that. And the next year you go up to and that gets passed on to another school and it ends up being, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You'll, you'll be like, well, these people exactly. have pigeonholed me into this. So let's just act like it. Exactly, exactly. And it's almost like this mock uh, exercise to experiment with what it would be like to give the person a criminal record. You know, absolutely. that's how I look at school yeah, files. Um, yeah. and, and, and there's also this very uncomfortable saviour complex, I think, that's encouraged as well in the, in the pastoral system within, within schools. So yeah. this idea that, you know, you've got to kind of, the, the only way that a vulnerable young person can be supported is in some way through um, creating a very binary dynamic of, oh, okay, you, you, you know, you've got family issues or you're not being taken yeah. care of in the family or, um, or, you know, or there's bullying. And it's, it, it, it just takes away, it just takes away all the different layers that make us people and make up and make up our experiences. And, um, and I think, that's part of the problem as well. I mean, we're almost being trained in, in school from a very young age not to look at all the different layers of people. So we're just, not only have you got the self-fulfilling prophecy, but then you also end up socialising other people because it's been done to yeah. you. So that's the only way you yeah. know how to behave in society, you know? Yeah. And this, and this is where we start to see, this is, I mean, this is, again, like, like we were saying at the start, the point, the point of the SVRN, right, was to look at this stuff 
in totality. I remember being in one of the conference panels on prisons, right? And someone was saying, oh, well, you know, like deaths in custody, this is this is a mistake. And I was like, well, no, it's not. Like this is mm. the point of bringing this all together is so people can't say, oh, well, prison, death in, deaths in prison custody, that's a mistake. The state isn't actually like that. Or education and pu- like punitive education and pathologizing to education, that's a mistake. That's not what the state is actually like. When actually what we're seeing is that this is the state working exactly as it is designed to work, right? Yeah. It is doing absolutely. the things that it needs to perpetuate its own power, its own violence, and it and it's destroying people in the meantime. Um, and so I yeah. suppose as a kind of final point, what I'd ask is, what do you think, What what is the role of, because both you and I, we're both academics, um, you know, we both ed- we're both educators. Yeah. Um, what do yeah. what do we do? What do other educators do within you know in the systems that we work in? Um, mm. Or is it even possible to do you know to to to, to go about other ways of teaching and socialising um, in these systems? Or does mm. it require us to be working outside of them? I think no. I think we can we can move change along from within the system, but a lot of it seems to depend on the good nature of the individuals within that system. Yeah. And that can be a very difficult mantle to carry for, a, you know, you can, you, it's not sustainable because it would mm-hmm. lead to burnout. Um, yeah. My, my, I guess my, my coping mechanism, I was, I've, I've been teaching for 17 years now and my coping mechanism has always been to accept that whilst I am part of a bigger institution, and mm-hmm. I won't necessarily have exposure to all the learners in that space and be able to make um, and have meaningful conversations or contextualize those individuals or have, have you know, um, essentially a, a, a humanist, you know, um, pedagogic kind of experience with these learners. What I yeah. can do is just focus on the um, what I'm embodying and how that's being seen in those spaces and remain ethical to my practice so so that's your reputation over time you know that this is an ethical teacher that that the students recognize that and then trying to trying to create that change as best you can in those classroom spaces that you do have so whether that's Mm -hmm. challenging the the norm like normalized um knowledge tropes which are socialized knowledge tropes um and doing that sometimes to be honest doing that by stealth you know um yeah, yeah in a way that is meaningful to to the curriculum and meaningful to what they what they need to learn but at the same time is um allowing them enough space to be able to form to continue forming that knowledge on their own independently um yeah. so i think there are ways there are ways but it requires a desocializing in ourselves first, I think, to, to a degree. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that, we have to, we yeah, have to work yeah. on that ourselves, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like questioning our biases and questioning why we think the, the way we do. And if there are uncomfortable exchanges, teaching and learning exchanges that we might have had with a student, like as, as uncomfortable as it is, unpacking that and questioning whether that is in some way a result of some sort of unspoken, socialised you know, dynamic, because I think quite often we don't, we don't realise how much we are being encouraged to see our learners in that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're being encouraged to see us in that way as well, in many ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of times I get, I often, if I'm entering a classroom where quite usually the majority of my students, if not all, are white, 
yeah. um, they there is always a bit of a surprise having an having a you know an an Asian British academic yeah teaching you like so I think yeah it, it works both ways the socialization yeah hence yeah. the desocialization George that's what this is all about for me anyway <laughs> <laughs> down yeah, down well, with I mean, all these is... hegemonies. <laughs> it gives me it gives me a lot of hope you know as someone who is a teacher as well who went to university because they wanted to be a teacher and now wants to teach in a university system and has been for the last three years it gives me some hope because part a big part of it for me was being like well what is my praxis going to be here right how am I going to teach because I don't I didn't want to do what was done to me I didn't want to perpetuate you know perpetuate the same kind of violences that are endemic to especially to the university system mm. and for me as someone who doesn't do entryism very well doesn't you know doesn't play well as part of a kind of institutional team my thing was was how do I justify my role here in a university and that was to be like well I get unfettered access to students right and I have to do my best by them in and by myself and by my colleagues and my comrades in order to not perpetuate these structures right and to try and make sure my own praxis is as equitable and non-hierarchical and open and accommodating and, and fair and kind as possible right mm, and so mm. hearing you talk about this gives me a lot of hope that actually you know like this is that we as educators providing we are constantly learning from our students and learning from our own process that we have you know this is something we can do right this is something we can actually make a difference through Oh, absolutely. And, you know, similarly, the State Violence Research Network gives me a lot of hope because I think quite often people have opinions and views about state violence, but they're too afraid to voice them. And I and I love this yeah. mobilisation of so many different voices in a very decentralised model, allow, allowing us to, 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 to give commentary, you know, um, because yeah, yeah. The, the state's never held accountable, is it? So... So it it does it does give me a lot of hope as well. Just just working with organize like just working with networks like yourself, like like you guys, because yeah. I feel like it's the, the work isn't just being lost on a page in a book somewhere. Like you know, it can be lifted off and and brought into a different space and actually spur on uh, meaningful activism, which I think is. Deep down, I think every teacher has that in them, don't they? They 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 want to they want to make yeah, a, I agree. a good change. I agree. Yeah, 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 and yeah. yeah, and it's it's you know you you when you when a student comes up to you and like you've made you've made a difference here that makes it just makes it all worth it, right? Definitely, um, and that that is when you realise that actually it's not as set in stone as sometimes it feels it is. You know that you can yeah yeah that, that, that we can crack through these walls, right? Definitely. On a on a on a sort of I guess um, a final note again sorry is um, I think the state <laughs> right. is con <laughs> I think the state is conscious of how much power teachers have in the classroom, mm -hmm. which is why they've been micromanaging education and curriculum for the past three decades at least. That's a really really that good point. Yeah. Yeah, I that's not that that's not there. that's not. A at it before that's a really really good point is that actually we're being deprofessionalized in order to limit our impact right yeah 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 and then you know schemes like prevent etc they've all yeah. attempted to position us in in really uncomfortable ways but fundamentally we're all pedagogues and we we know our pedagogies and, and we don't we don't enter into this profession lightly it's clearly not for the money 
or yeah, you know, not, the benefits. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, so I know that I, I think that I think there is a realization that it is a very particular type of person that enters this field, and they, they're not very easy to manipulate. Um, yeah. So, so we have to yeah. be broken instead. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Bro- over and over again yeah, <laughs> every repeatedly. time a new government comes in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well joe thank you so much i've really really enjoyed chatting with you as always um oh, can you same, just George, give us give you. give give people who are listening a quick like where can we find you obviously there's the uh, performing activism working group that you can find on our website but other places we can find yes. out what you're doing and what you're up to yeah, sure. So I founded the Social Performance Network back in November 2018. It's um, a uh, similarly um, similar to social, uh, similar to to your network. It's 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 aspiring to a decentralized model. Uh, so we want to work with artists, activists, um, academics, uh, the public, anyone really, in just opening up. Um, conversations these could be literal conversations it could be pieces of art it could be events uh, after the you know outbreak panics over um, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, we, we just unpacks um, socialization and challenges it um, so you can find out more by going to our website which is um, social-performance.academy uh, we also have a twitter um account so that's at social performer too so please do connect with us and if you're interested in learning more or working together or anything you know we're very open to to things so we'd be very happy to hear from you well i'll make sure those links get put out obviously on our on our um yeah we we routinely share stuff from you in the social performers network on our twitter account so i'll make sure that stuff goes out um so i think it's time to sign off so joe thank you so much um really really grateful to have you have you in conversation with us um for those that have been listening you can check out the um the state violence research network online so we've got our social media accounts you can find us on twitter at state violence rn you can find our website at stateviolenceresearchnetwork.co.uk. Um, because of the coronavirus, our upcoming conference has been transitioned to online now, so rather than in person. Um, as a consequence of us going online, we're no longer asking people to pay registration fees, but we will be putting out, hopefully, if we can get the logistics sorted, but we'll be putting out links for how you can get involved for the online portions of the conference. Um, if you'd like to support the network financially at this point, you can become a, uh, consider becoming a patron by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash State Violence Research Network and become a regular supporter. Um, in the meantime, um, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get involved with the network, please check out our Twitter account, check out our website. Membership is always free and will remain free forever. If, you, if you'd like to consider being on the podcast, please drop us an email at stateviolenceresearchnetwork at gmail.com. Um, my name is George Francis Bickers and I will see you again in the next episode.